quick one. If you can hit follow or subscribe to this podcast, that really helps me track new listeners. Cheers. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Wealth Journal podcast with me, Jay Hardy. Now this week on the podcast, I welcome Chris Desi. Chris is the Chief Revenue Officer of Diamond Standard, the world's only regulator-approved diamond commodity. Chris has also had an incredibly successful career, in particular when it comes to leveraging the power of technology and social media to grow brands and their revenues. He's also founded his own social media agency, which actually led to him appearing on multiple US TV media outlets as their go-to guy for social media in the news. Chris has also been a TEDx speaker, a prolific blogger, and has actually published a number of books. A couple of titles include Remarkable You, Build a Personal Brand and Take Charge of Your Career, and Just Like You, 24 Interviews of Ordinary People Who've Achieved Extraordinary Success. Now, me and Chris got together originally to discuss Diamond Standard, and we ended up having one of the most incredible conversations. I was left feeling inspired, motivated, and at times emotional. There really is something for everyone in this interview. Now, before we kick off, usual disclaimer, anything me and Chris discuss should not be considered investment advice. We don't make any recommendations to buy or sell anything, and I encourage you to do your own research before making any investment decisions. Better yet, seek advice from a qualified financial professional. The Wealth Journal is here only to educate, entertain and inspire. Now with that out the way, let's get cracking. So Chris, welcome to the Wealth Journal podcast. It's uh, it's great to have you on today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. No worries. So the Wealth Journal podcast is obviously about my journey towards building wealth. We discuss investments and careers and, and all sorts of different things to, to help people on their journey as well. And I know we spoke last week and in the build-up to this podcast, I decided to do a little bit more research about you because there's quite a lot that I want to discuss with you. And I'm going to start in probably a bit of a, maybe an unusual place for the listener, which mm-hmm. is going back, I think, to maybe 2016 when you did a TEDx talk. And yeah. I actually watched that video a couple of days ago and for me it was it was quite strange really because you guys sort of initially reached out to to me sort of quite randomly really and I watched this video and you told a story about um your youngest daughter I think Olivia who was maybe nine months old at the time and yeah um she was you know she was very poorly in the night really hot and um I had a, I had a, I've got a son who's, who's one now and uh, his sister's four. So I think your kids at the time were maybe nine months and three months, uh, three years. Yeah. Yeah. About the same age. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been through. So, and what happened to you that night? And I never, I didn't have it as, as bad at the time, but I remember going into my son one night, he was really hot, you know, 39, 40, de- you know, 40 degrees. So scary. Yeah. Incredibly hot, really scary. And, um, Fortunately, at the time, I was able to bring his temperature down, and it, it seemed to take forever. But we never got, we didn't get to that point where we had to contact emergency services. But it felt like close. So when he was explaining that, I could really, I really felt like I put myself in your position. Um, 
and I could see the emotion uh, that you sort of brought on stage when you was explaining that. And then you also went on to talk about your father who unfortunately uh, developed ALS uh, disease and my brother-in-law has also got the same condition at the moment. Oh my God. You're kidding me. No. So he was, he was diagnosed, I think maybe the beginning of last year. Um, and I was like, what can I do to, to help support my brother-in-law? So I decided to run a marathon. Which Come on, <laughs> come on. Is the, the same thing that, that you decided to do to, to obviously raise awareness and, and support the charity. I, I raised um, funds to, to help get him a, a, a wheelchair so he could, he could get around. And, Jay, and, you're and killing him. me, man. You're absolutely killing me. Man, if you don't think that we are all connected in some way, then you are absolutely out of your mind. Like if there is no, if, if somebody listening to this can't think to themselves that there's something else going on, I don't know that you can dispute that there's something else going on. That's crazy to me. I know. Yeah. You're on the other side of an ocean. A colleague of mine discovered your podcast. We had a lovely conversation to talk about Diamond Standard. You then research and find these similarities. That's crazy to me, man. Yeah. I know. I was sort of sat there watching the video and I actually, you know, I, I felt quite emotional um, because it was such a, you know, you know, what happened with your daughter was much, much worse than, than what happened with my son. Fortunately, we never got to that point. But then when you talked about the marathon in your, and your dad and, and things like that, and literally last, I ran my marathon in October. Um, Congratulations. And, yeah, thanks. And it was just like, yeah, wow. I mean, um, I couldn't believe it really because it was so, you know, yeah, so similar. And um, I sort of wanted to start there because I've never really shared that on on the podcast as well about you know my brother-in-law and obviously that's that's challenging for us as a as a family and um my my sister sort of they live quite far away they live further down south so it's it's hard for me to to support them on on a day-to-day basis so that was my way of trying to do what i could based on where i am and and what a beautiful way to do it right like what a beautiful way to do it yeah, you kind of landed in the same spot that I landed on, where you feel helpless because this thing is happening to your family and to someone that you love and to your loved ones, and you took action in the best way that you can conceive of. I find it really fascinating that we took the same action. I think that, that yeah. that's really interesting. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's kind of crazy, man. I think we're friends for life now. I think it's official. We're not, we're not allowed to not be friends. <laughs> no, that, 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 that works for me. Um, yeah. but I wanted to, um, because that talk was, was about vulnerability. Um, so I thought I would share, I would share that on the podcast because you also talked about the, the benefits that you've experienced through sharing your vulnerabilities in, in life and the benefit that's, that's had in your professional career. So I wanted just to kick off with, I guess, my first question. It's taken a while to get out here, but um, 
how can I think guys naturally struggle being vulnerable? I don't know why. Yeah. Um, why do you think that's the case, and what have you learned through being more vulnerable? Why do I think it's the case? Um, I think there's a couple of things going on. Why it's the case? I think we're partially kind of hardwired to always say we're okay from an early age as men you're taught by dad to you know you fall get up rub, you know dust yourself off and keep going don't cry keep going um and that's okay i mean there's a there's a place for that right um and there's a place to be a man and a protector and a you know i always tell my daughters i'm obsessed with crossfit and i work out six days a week. I do CrossFit five days and I do yoga one day and then I rest one day. That's important too. Um, but I always say it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a, in a war that you always want to be prepared. And I think that that now at 47 years old is, is that's more that aspect of being a man I'm okay with and being a, you know, protector and a nurturer of my daughter's lives. But when you're younger, you're taught to, you know, have this outward appearance and speak of things as if they never bother you, they never hurt you, that you're never in a bad way. I actually think that, thank God, you know, my daughter's generation, my girls are now 14 and 11, that little nine-month-old that I talked about, she's 11. And it's interesting, when you said it, I started getting emotional when you brought it up. You're like, oh, you know, she was a little Olivia, thank you for getting her name right. That was nice, nice of you. Um, but I was like, wow, she's, you know, this thriving, incredible athlete, amazing student, you know, super talented, you know, singer and performer at 11 years old. I was like, wow, aren't I lucky? Um, I think we're, you know, it's hardwired in us and we're taught through society for us to be, you know, very you know, the machismo thing. But what I was trying to say about my daughters is I think that their generation, it's, it's getting better, right? Like it's okay now for kids, kids, period, male or female that speak about their feelings and to be okay with taking a time out. I think my daughters are very lucky to see like Simone Biles, major athlete, taking a step back for her own mental and physical health. That just didn't happen when I was growing up, man. It just did not happen. I mean, it was, you know, like, I mean, I remember like breaking my nose playing rugby in college running off to the sidelines, knowing that it was broken, you know, you know, when you've broken your nose and my coach taking Vaseline, sticking it up my nose and shoving cotton balls in my nose and smacked me on the ass and was like, go get them. <laughs> and he go back out. And I was like, but, but that really hurts. Like, <laughs> you know, It's just a different, different thing. You know, I was like, all right, I won't protect my body. I'll protect my pride. Um, but I do think, if everybody kind of confronts themselves about vulnerability um, and I should say that Brene Brown was a huge inspiration for my, for my TEDx talk, obviously. Um, and she continues to be a huge inspiration for me. And I just read her most recent book. And in that book, she talks about how vulnerability for individuals, it's such an appealing thing to find in somebody else. Right. Like what you just did, Jay, the way you opened that up 
and you just spoke about your own life and your own children and your own brother-in-law and your own, whether you, whether you realize it or not, your grief, like your, that marathon was, is you working through your grief because you're dealing with your family is dealing with that diagnosis and you're saying I'm helpless. How do I do something? Ran the marathon. You're a doer. You had to do something. And it's so appealing for us to meet somebody like that, male or female. It's not about oversharing. It's just about being vulnerable when it's appropriate. But for whatever reason, it we're so resistant to it because in our minds, it smacks of weakness. Mm. Whereas when we are in the witnessing end of it, it it shines as such profound strength. So there's this cognitive dissonance. And I think it gets lost sometimes because of the oversharing, specifically through social media, where some people think they're being vulnerable and they, you know, kind of prattle on about some of the most inane things that are upsetting them or bothering them. Well, you just shared with your listeners and with me something really profound. And there's, you know, you only become, there's, there, you need to be authentic. I think this is from Brene's book. She said, you need to be authentic in order to belong. Right. And I think that that's it, right? If it's authentic vulnerability without bombast or platitude or um, a place of, uh, <laughs> Like they, it's called being thirsty, right? Somebody, somebody just wanting attention. We're, we're all, we all have pretty good barometers of that. We could smell bullshit from pretty far away. Most of us, when it's real, whew, bonded forever, man. You and I are bonded forever, legitimately, right? Like you know that, you know that because you just chose to be vulnerable. And if you didn't, and you're like, ah, oh, this podcast, a lot of people listen to it. I don't really want people to know this. No. Well, and then what, what did you just do? You just cracked something open. Now, now you just cracked open an audience of parents that can relate to you thinking about your one-year-old and breaking a fever. And I'd venture to guess that there are a few of your listeners that might have somebody in their life, whether they're dealing with a terminal illness or not, are probably dealing with some sort of illness. And how do I manage that? And how do I honor that person without, without, pity, right? This is a big difference, right? You don't want pity. I'm sure your brother-in-law doesn't want pity. He'd probably smack you. You know, if he can't, if he still can, he'd probably seriously, like he'd probably want to beat you up if, if you, if he felt pity from you, but to have like a genuine uh, olive branch extended to him in order to do that and to show that to your listeners, or I think that that's such a profound gift. Yeah, I think a lot of my my motivations for the podcast has always been to to help share the knowledge that I, that I come across, and obviously those of the the guest. But really, if it wasn't for probably what happened to my brother in law, that really inspired me to actually, like you say, do like do something. And I was training for the marathon, I was listening to podcasts, and it was just like you know, I should do one. You know, this is 
And why not? You know, our time is, is, is limited. It's finite. Um, and it really gave me the motivation I needed to actually just to do something and um, go for it. Jay, you just, you just cracked open a secret to life, brother. Is you know, team gets shit done. In, in the TEDx talk, for your listeners that, you know, haven't seen it, part of the story was that by virtue of my running the marathon, one of the most magical things, I, I get choked up trying to say it, legitimately, I get choked up. One of the most magical things that have ever happened to me in my entire life happened because I decided to run that marathon and the marathon was canceled and I ran it around a local high school track. And my father was there when I finished and I was able to hug him when I finished, man, I don't even, I don't need to look at pictures. I don't need to look at video. I closed my eyes. I can smell him. I can feel, I, my daughters ran into my arms when I was, you know, crossing the finish line, the faux finish line that they created for me. And I got lucky that the marathon was New York city marathon was canceled that year. And I had such a special, unique, bizarre, crazy experience. And guess what? My father felt something that I could never gift to him. There could be, I could never give him something in a box that would have articulated truly how much I love that man mm-hmm. other than me doing literally doing something physically like that, where he witnessed it. It's crazy. So like team get shit done, <laughs> just do something, yeah. just do something secret to life, man. Right. Don't know what to do. I don't know. Just do something, <laughs> get up and do something. Yeah. And it always leads to something magical. And and of course I'm I'm sorry to hear about your your father as well. Um, but it sounds like you, I think you'll you'll have made him proud. Um, because I was I was looking at your um your resume <laughs> and just sort of the career that you've had. And um, I think when I went onto your LinkedIn, I, I knew um you'd had a successful career because I think the first the first uh like thing as I come across is you on TV quite a lot. <laughs> I uh, I thought, well, this could be an interesting conversation. But just looking at some of your um, some of the previous roles that you've held, vice president of sales, um, you then went to set up um, your own company, Silverback Social, where you was the CEO and founder, so an entrepreneur. And then um, I think they were acquired by Performline. I could be could be wrong there, and yep. And then you worked for Products Up. And yep. now recently you're the chief revenue officer at Diamond Standard. So when I look Best back at my life. <laughs> oh, amazing. And, and of course yeah. we're gonna get it, we're gonna get into yeah. uh, Diamond Standard. <laughs> but when I look back at your career, it seems like you've had a huge amount of success. And um I was also on your blog and I saw that you wrote a book about about success. And I was keen if you could share almost like what you learned on that journey through the the people because i think you interviewed maybe 24 different people who had, had achieved a huge amount of success in their life and yeah i wanted to sort of understand was there any sort of common threads common habits from them people that that you learn and also that that you've learned yourself <laughs> and applied to your life yeah uh god jay i'm enjoying this conversation so much um <laughs> the the such a good question. All right. So I'm going to, I got to hit the rewind button and go early on in my career. And I will say one thing, 
yeah, I ran my own agency for eight years, but I was definitively a reluctant entrepreneur. And what I mean by that is I had gotten terminated and was gobsmacked by and completely spun around by it, knocked on my ass. And I had a choice. Either I go get another J-O-B and get into another scenario where I'll probably be in the same type of position with the same type of boss that will put me through the same type of scenario. Um, or I can say, let's burn those, burn the ships, you know, when they talk about like burning the ships so that there is no retreat and start your own business. And, you know, as candidly as I can be, Jet, like it was awful. First year of my entrepreneurial journey, I made less money than I made in my first job out of college. And it was brutal. Um, Buddy Media got acquired after that. And I had purchased the equity in Buddy Media. And I got a check from that. I was smart enough on my way out the door to buy the little bit of equity that invested for me. And then that helped fund the bigger projects that I wanted to do. So I ran events, the Westchester Digital Summit, because I found left my uh, started my company in Westchester, New York, about an hour north of the city. Reached out to a pal of mine that I had met a couple of years prior, Gary Vaynerchuk, that had been an inspiration for me to get into social media. And I was like, hey, man, can you come keynote this event? And he's like, Desi, my fee is $40,000. And I was like, dude, he's like, I'll do it for 10 you can scrape together 10 grand. I'll come out to Westchester and I'll keynote. And he made the event. And I had set five months later, I had 750 people at that event. And that became the top of the funnel for my, my sales funnel for my agency. And I ran that agency. And within... So this is what I mean by like, team gets shit done. I got terminated from Buddy Media. Three months later, when I decided to start Silverback, three months later, dude, producer from a local Fox affiliate calls me at two o'clock in the afternoon. And he said, an EMT worker just got fired over a Facebook post. Do you have any opinion on that? And I had been obsessively blogging about social media for the previous six years. And I had done point counterpoint. What happens when you post something on social media and a boss might see it, or you post something and a spouse might see it. And I had been obsessing over digital media, social media, that entire ecosystem, because that was my career. That's what I had been doing. Um, and I should say, I only started the blog because I wanted to further my career. I started the blog in 2004 when I was a director of sales and wanted to be a vice president of sales. And headhunters were sending me for interviews to be a director of sales. And I was like, no, idiots. I want to be a VP. I want to be higher than that. And they're like, sorry, we're just going to place you as a director of sales. And I was like, you know what? All these other people are pundits. I'm just as smart as they are. And I wrote a blog post about affiliate marketing, about a fatal flaw for paying for performance, that it can open yourself up to fraudulent activity on affiliate networks, because I was working at an affiliate network at the time. Gave that to the hiring manager who gave that to a guy that was hiring for a company called Xanox. And he didn't even want to look at my resume. I met him for coffee, pushed the resume to the side. I want to talk about your blog. Talk to me about your blog. Gave me the job. And I went, holy shit, man, I'm onto something. And then I got obsessive with it. I blogged probably yeah, at least once a week about my industry um, all the way up until I really wanted to get into social media and started not just talking about affiliate marketing, but talked about social media. I saw Gary speak up on stage 
wrote a huge email to Gary. Hey, dude, I want to work for you at VaynerMedia. Met with him. And he was like, Chris, you make way too much money. You have a wife and kids and a mortgage. And I'm hiring my, bro- my brother AJ's friend straight out of BU for 20 grand a year. He's like, go do social media and then come back to me. So I went and I launched a blog called Dadzilla because he's like, do something that you're passionate about. Remember, team gets shit done. Like I'm, you're like, oh, I, I just did shit. Right? I did dadzilla.com, dadzilla TV. I was reviewing baby products that I was using for my oldest daughter just so I could figure out how to build a website, how to create a, a Facebook ecosystem, how to create a community on Twitter. I was reaching out to other uh, like daddy authors and I was creating this entire ecosystem. So I figured it out. Then I got a job at Buddy Media. And then the second week at Buddy Media, I introduced Gary Vaynerchuk to Mike Lazaro. Gary incubated VaynerMedia in the Buddy Media offices. So I got to see Gary in action. And I was like, oh my God, this is a different way of doing business. Brought Gary into major meetings with me. He helped me close my first deal at Buddy Media, which was the NHL. Spent a year doing that, learning from him and loving it. Buddy Media hired a manager from Google. He came in, didn't like my face. And a week later, I got fired. And, and that... Pardon my language. That fucked me up, man. Like truly, because I was doing something that I was passionate about. I loved those people at Buddy Media, like loved them. I worked my ass off to get that job at Buddy Media. I was super proud of like having Gary incubate his agency, VaynerMedia in Buddy Media. And I was like, wow, what a, what a thing to do, right? I wanted to work for one guy, got a job with another guy. They're incubating in, in the same office. I'm part of this family. And when I got clipped, um, and I write about it in my, in my first book, Remarkable You. I wrote about it because I think I had, um, I, I, you know, in hindsight, I think I had uh, um, a panic attack. Like I couldn't speak. Right. I tried to speak. I literally couldn't speak. And I got up, I got my things and I left. And, but it broke something in me, Jay. Like I, I really was like, okay, I was doing something I was passionate about. I was doing all the right things, doing everything right, but I still got fired. Huh huh, that's weird. You know, who's never going to fire you, you. Okay. Do something. And I started to try to find clients and it was slow because I wasn't really like as energetic as I should have been because I got knocked on my backside. Um, but then I would start to do things like my dad got, had just gotten diagnosed with ALS. And I read a book called, uh, the 23 gifts, something like, I think it was 23 gifts something about the number where a woman had multiple sclerosis and then she would give away roses to strangers on the street and it made her feel good. I was like, all right, I need to feel good. So my dad at the time was 69. So I did a 69 day challenge and that became my blog. Every day I would do something nice for somebody and then I'd blog about it. Barista at Starbucks, I wrote her a letter, folded it up, made it all formal. I said, can I speak to your manager? Like her, she went white. She's like, did I do something wrong? I'm like, no, you did everything right. I'm like, here you go. She's incredible. Give her a raise. Write a whole blog post about that. Saw a guy who's, who had a flat tire in the middle of New York City in a snowstorm. Stopped him, helped him change the flat tire. Blog post about it. All to just put good energy out to the universe because I was feeling awful about it. And then good shit started to happen. It started to snowball. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to take some of those blog posts. I'm going to write a book. And... I spent 10 months and I wrote a mediocre book about social media called Remarkable You. Um, 
Oh, and that, that was where I started. Three months after I got terminated from Buddy Media, producer calls me two o'clock in the afternoon because he had read my blog posts for all the, oh, pardon me, he hadn't read them, but my blog posts from all those years had built up equity with Google. So he Googled, wait for it, he Googled social media guru. And my blog came up, not because, here's why. Because I wrote a blog post saying if anybody anybody refers to themselves as a guru, they're full of shit, <laughs> right? Because like that's the most insane thing I've ever heard, right? And social media changes so quickly. So this guy found that charming, thought it was funny. Jason Hartilius, he's still my pal to this day. Sincerely, we're still really good friends. And because he, he jokes, he says, I plucked you from obscurity. But he did. He Googled social media guru. He found me taking the piss out of anybody that calls themselves a social media guru. Thought that was charming. Calls me up at two o'clock in the afternoon. Says, do you have an opinion on this? Yeah, man. I've been blogging about it for six years. I have an opinion on this. Put me on television that night. And I did an incredible job. Dude, I look at the, I look at the appearance now. And I'm still like, I have no idea how relaxed that, how I was so relaxed for a TV appearance. Cool as a cucumber, came off great. The anchor, Ernie Anastas, like walked me off stage. He's like, you did great. They're going to keep calling you back and back and back and back. And they did. So what did I learn from all those people with success? Everybody gets knocked on their ass. Everybody has a moment where they get fired and they can't speak. Everybody has the most insane hardship that you've ever thought about, but then they find a silver line and then they move and they continue to move forward and they do something. Everybody's at all the stakes against them and says, fuck everybody. I'm still going to do it. And then when the opportunity comes, they're ready and they don't screw it up. Right. So maybe like that's probably those, those things that I just articulated. I was ready for the moment. I didn't screw it up. I was absolutely poised and talk about sweet, sweet, I don't want to say revenge, but what a sweet thing, right? I'd gotten fired three months prior and now all of a sudden I'm on TV and then they kept inviting me to the evening news and I go to my pal, Jason. I'm like, Hey, can I get on the couch for the morning show? That'd be really fun. Sure. Puts me on the couch for the morning show. I sit down next to Rosanna Scotto, the anchor. She's Italian American. I'm Italian American. I looked at her. I went, wow, you're beautiful. And she was like, Chris Desi, we are going to get along beautifully. <laughs> and we and we had a blast. And for years, I became their go-to social media guy. And it became the top of the funnel for my agency. And, you know, a lot of it too. My dad was ill with ALS. And a lot of it was me being like, dad, I'm okay. Like, look, aren't you proud of me? Dad, look, this is going yeah. great. And... And I was building the agency and I was, I was doing, you know, three to five television appearances per week that were just pumping in sales for my agency. You know, it was fun. It was back. I mean, if your listeners are old enough, it was back when like Charlie Sheen was tweeting that he's got tiger's blood and, you know, saying all sorts of wacky stuff on Twitter. And I would come on and comment about it and it had nothing to do with my agency, but it had everything to do with social media because my background, I have an undergraduate degree in psychology, but I have a master's degree in direct marketing because my father advised me to get a master's degree in direct marketing. And he was like, I wanted to be a dot-com millionaire. And he's like, the internet is, is direct marketing on steroids. That's the, that's the, maybe that's the eighth thing. All those people had mentors or sought out mentors. My father was the most profound mentor of my life. And he, I still hear his voice to this day. 
but he helped me. I wanted to be a dot-com millionaire in 1999. And he's like, go get your master's degree in direct marketing at NYU. So when I came out of that at the end of 99, I got my first job in tech in 2000 at a, at a company called Mediaplex. And then the rest is history, right? Um, yeah. I mean, every one of those people that I interviewed, and my dad is the last interview. He's the 24th interview, 24 interviews of ordinary people that have achieved extraordinary success. My dad is the last interview. Um, they've all seen insane hardship and they've all overcome it some way, um, by believing in themselves and, or just taking that first step, right? It was the Martin Luther. There's a Martin Luther King quote about faith. And it's like, just take the first step, just believe and take the first step, right? To keep moving team gets, I say, I keep saying team gets shit done. Like people should know what I'm talking about. I use that internally at diamond standard often. Um, so that tends to be something that I talk about. That's cool. That's, um, cause I, when I looked at the first few pages of the book and it, it seemed like obviously because you, you'd lost your dad to that you know, terrible illness, who was sort of your, your mentor, he guided both, you know, you and your brother, but then you, you wanted to obviously continue on that path with reaching out to your network and learning from other people who'd, who'd achieved extra, extraordinary things. So I thought that was really cool. And <laughs> conscious, I don't want to bring it back to your dad too often because, um, bring it back to him, man. I got to tell you, this is a gift. Thank you. I don't really have the opportunity to speak about him like this. And I really, I love it. So thank you. I always feel like I'm honoring him when I have the opportunity to speak about him like this. So keep going. <laughs> good, good. Um, because my dad's given me a huge amount of of advice over over the years, and but my dad's advice—he's not like an expert at business or finance. His skill set is just people. He's great with with people. He's he's well liked, and he's always sort of maybe passed that on to me. But it, it through sort of reading some of the pages in your in your book. I feel like your dad helped guide your career a little bit in some ways, like you just mentioned then. So I'm keen to just sort of understand what was some of the key points of advice that, that he gave you that, that maybe you've passed on to your, your daughters about um, their career and, and success. Yeah, really good question. Um, my father had an innate ability to coach right? Like he was, he had an MBA and he was an executive. He was, you know, at the peak of his career, he was the senior director of direct and database marketing for Avon Cosmetics. So he was an early adopter where he was building websites in the early nineties. He literally drew me a diagram of the internet in 1993 when I got my first email address as a freshman in college, because I didn't know really why I needed to use email. So my, my dad was way ahead of the curve just by virtue of his job. To, and he was right. To, he, you know, he was a direct marketer and the internet was direct marketing on steroids. So all those direct marketers got online really early. His advice is advice that I actually use with my team almost daily. And I'm not kidding. And when I talk to the people that I interact with, we always talk about me, my job when I'm managing 
is to put them in a situation where they can utilize their superpowers because people have pretty profound superpowers. And if you can spot those superpowers and put them in a place where they can succeed using those superpowers, you're going to do exceptionally well. And my father taught me that by virtue of digging, like he just wanted to help me. So when I was, you know, I was, I had an undergraduate degree in psychology, but there was a blip on the screen, right? I got accepted into an Erasmus program held, um, international Erasmus program centered at Catholic University in Leuven, Belgium. And that program, Leuven, is in a university city, 35,000 students in that city. And I lived in a dorm from students from around the world. And while I was there, I took industrial organizational psychology courses for my undergraduate degree credits in psychology. But they were much more business focused. And I loved them. And I was getting A's in them. And here's the rub. There were University of Chicago MBA students that were taking a semester abroad as well in the Erasmus program that were getting MBA credits for their business degree by taking the same industrial organizational psychology courses. And I went, huh, I'm really good at this business thing. And if it's just about psychology and people and like understanding how to sell a product or like industrial psychology and organizational psychology is about like retail layout and why are, you know, why are casinos, why, why casinos don't have clocks and why the rooms are ugly. So they get you out of the room, why fast food places play fast music in the background and fancy restaurants play slow music. They want you to stay. So that you order that extra bottle of wine at the end of the night, fast food plays fast music. They want you in and out really quickly. Why does McDonald's have hard chairs? They don't want you to get comfortable. They want you to sit down, eat and get out. Like, Oh, and I was like, this is business. So I came home. I said, dad, I want to change my major to business. And he's like, no, you're not. You're graduating next year. <laughs> he didn't want me to stay for another year because it was expensive. So he said, you know, graduate, get your degree in psychology, and then we'll figure it out from there. And I got a job at a psych rehab hospital right out of college. And I was 21, 22. And I was a psych counselor for 18 year olds who got caught with a bag of weed by their parents. And I was like, what? Like, come on. And I'm, you know, being their counselor. And I was like, this is not for me. This is not what I want to be doing. And everybody was becoming, a, uh, you know, a dot-com millionaire. This is 97, 98. And uh, spring of 97 into 98. And my dad's colleague was launching a program. But my dad invited me to the house. And he, he used to have a legendary flipboard where he would advise neighbors and neighbors' kids about what they want to do for their career. My dad was just good at it. Like he, he always worked at agencies and agencies had lots of rollover. They'd have a bunch of clients, then they'd lay everybody off and then you go to another agency. And my dad was really great at like resume writing and figuring out what the next step was. So he knew what questions to ask. And when he asked me questions about my career, he's like, okay, what you're telling me is it's not psychology. It's either marketing or sales. Chris, what classes did you enjoy? Chris, what did you like best about those classes? Chris, oh, you liked public speaking? What did you like about the public speaking class? And like knew what questions to ask me. And that was his advice was focus on your superpowers. Because once you define that, he's like, I have a friend that is, you know, the chairman of this program. I had taken the GREs 
to go to maybe get my side or my MSW. Um, but he's like, Oh, you got to take your GMATs. So I went and I took my GMATs and they allowed me into the courses for the first month until I took my GMATs or I would have gotten kicked out if I didn't get a certain score. I got the certain score. I got straight A's that first semester. Cause Holy shit. When your dad opens a door for you, you run through that fucking door like a bull. And I did exceptionally well. And I found my thing because my father sat me down and asked really profound questions. I think it's a great lesson too, because, you know, on the diamond standard team and we'll get to diamond standard, right? Like I said, it really is the best job I've ever had in my entire career, but I have team members that are so diverse. They have different superpowers. My guy, Andy is a, you know, 30 year career wall street guy. I'm not going to ask that guy to log a call in a Zoho CRM. I'm going to tell him to get on a call and go close a $2 million deal in 20 minutes, which I've witnessed him do, which is crazy because he's just Andy that, that, know, that has this institutional knowledge of 30 years and he can get on a call, know what somebody is looking for and sell it to them. But then I have Kat, who I mentioned earlier, who's just been out of school two years from Syracuse She's brilliant. She's so smart. She's super tech savvy. She's hungry. She takes any project I put in front of her and she gets it done. And I put her in a position so that she can be successful. So that success begets more success. And I don't hold Andy accountable to things that I would hold Kat accountable for and vice versa. They're both on my team, but I help them find their superpowers and I get the fuck out of their way. Pardon my language, but it's like, it's, it's important, right? It's an important thing. So I guess I've never had anybody ask me that, but I guess that that's the the best advice that he gave me was to focus on my superpowers. And, and I guess it's by osmosis, kind of what I've done for my girls, where I've exposed them to as much as I can. And I could see it now where they're, they're splitting where my big one who just turned 14, they both played lacrosse, soccer, basketball, softball, and they're both in theater and have done dance um, and have played in a musical instrument. Now I've exposed them to all of those things. I've asked them what they like the most and to really challenge themselves. Are you smiling when you go to pra- imagine yourself going to practice? Are you smiling? No. Okay. When you're playing in the game, are you smiling? I guess sort of, okay, probably shouldn't do that. So now Olivia, who's 11, she's not playing lacrosse anymore, but she's focusing now on softball and basketball. She's incredible at softball and basketball. Daddy wants her to play lacrosse. Guess what? It's not my life. It's her, it's her life. And she's, she's an amazing lacrosse goalie. And I'm like, Oh, that'd be a great scholarship position. But I go, baby, are you smiling on your way to practice? No. Okay. That's not it. Are you smiling when you play softball? Yeah. Are you smiling when you, when you play basketball? Yeah. All time. Can't stop giggling the entire time. Then those are your things. My big one. Okay. Phasing out some of the sports. Are you smiling when you're on stage? Daddy, I love it. Are you smiling when you're memorizing your lyrics for your play? Daddy, I love it. Like, I don't have to, I'll come into her room and she's like doing her homework so that she can get to her theater to study, to study her, her lines finding their superpowers and getting the fuck out of their way. <laughs> wow, Chris. That, yeah, that's awesome. I think because um, for people that work in business or lead teams, that, that's that's amazing. And also for, for parents as well. 
in helping guide their children. I think that's that's really cool. Not always possible when you're managing a team, but but it does help you kind of reconsider and how to repurpose people. And I've learned that from executives here, right? I've learned that from Doug Jordan, who's our um, chief of staff and our um, interim COO, where he's helped us repurpose staff internally because we're a startup, right? So when you hire somebody for one job and that might not necessarily fit where they're where they're supposed to be, then you go, okay, move them here and then watch them flourish. And it's not always an easy thing for people in business to do, to be able to say, you know, without saying you're fired or you're, they're a terrible employee. As a manager, it's your job to be able to find that niche for that person and to dedicate yourself to allowing for them to flourish. Um, I think it's really important. And like I said, I'm you know 47 years old. I still learn from my peers and from my mentors, right? And um, that's part of the joy of work and part of the joy of life, right? Always yeah. learning. You're curious. That's why you have this podcast, man. You have a curious mind. Isn't it the most fun part of your day? It's got to yeah. be, right? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, the podcast has definitely taken a bit of a, a bit of a left turn with this episode, but when I talk about wealth and I've, I've, I've always said this on the podcast, wealth isn't just about being rich or having money, but it, wealth is, is health in terms of mental health, physical health. It's, it's career. It's, it gives you choices. It can be all sorts of different things. So I want to bring different conversations to the podcast that people can just apply to their everyday lives, just to either help with improvement or whatever it may be. And what, and what a gift Jay that you're bringing to the world, man. I mean, like, and I, I have little kids, they're little, I guess in my mind, but you know, we talk about meditation. We talk about fitness. I don't just talk about being physically fit and eating well. I talk about what it does for their brains when they, after they've had a practice and they're giggling, I said, do you feel the way you feel right? Feel the way you feel right now. They'll stop. Think about it. Do you know why? Like the endorphins are going, are firing, right? Synapses are firing. Endorphins are pumping. You've changed the chemical makeup of your brain. Do you know that you can control that, that you have that ability to control that? I think that that's the gift that is more of a generational thing, right? Like my dad never really worked out, smoked a pipe, um, but my mother was like that. And my mother was all about eating properly and being able to, and I think having, giving children the gift of understanding that they can control their environment and their temperament and their approach to their day by controlling when they go to bed, monitoring their sleep, when they exercise, you know, I'm a little bit crazy and I do, I get up at four 30 in the morning to work out and do CrossFit, but guess what? My friends are there at 5.30 when I get to the gym every morning that they all work out with me. So I associate with like-minded people that are health-oriented, that are goal-oriented, that are all type A like me. By virtue of getting up early, I go to bed early. By virtue of wanting to improve myself, I take a cold shower, you know, a cold plunge at the shower at the end every day because I know that that helps my immune system and that helps me. When I take the train in in the morning, I meditate every morning. I'm always trying to improve myself. So I'm listening to audio books or I'm reading books and I'm trying to, you know, I gift books to my colleagues and my, and my team members, things that have, an, have had an impact on my life. And that's an ongoing fun thing to do with kids and colleagues and share all those different bits of information and share what they do to stay fit. And, you know, I can't go to the gym. That's not my thing says Kat. So she joins a soccer league and a kickball league and, and does, you know, different types of stuff. 
and then you learn from them. Yeah. Amazing. So this podcast obviously though is about wealth and investments. So let's get to the diamonds. Let's talk about the diamond standard. Um, you briefly mentioned that it's, it's the best job in the world as well that you're doing at the moment. So how did, how did it come about? Tell us about the diamond standard. What is it? And yeah, just go for it. Yeah. Like all best things in life, it happens when you're not, when you're not looking for it. Right. Um, (laughs) or maybe there's, you've made room in your life for it. Uh, Cormac and I connected on LinkedIn and this is Cormac Kenny, Cormac Kenny, founder and CEO. And it's kind of like where everything begins and ends with diamond standard is Cormac. And, and, and I'll get to that, but I also think it's important and kind of funny. You talk about vulnerability and being like true to yourself and being honest. Um, our first conversation, Cormac and I, he popped on the screen and I said, I think I said this earlier, but I was like, I have no experience in finance. Why are we talking? And he's like, well, you've built sales organizations. And I was like, okay, good. Let's keep talking. And for me, that was a huge like uh, burden off my chest. I was like, oh my God, this guy's actually taking a meeting with me. I'm not a finance person. I can't speak to the finance world. But yeah, I've built sales organizations. I've, you know, I've built my agency. I've built, you know, I've run... We did five events in three years or four events in three years. Like I've been able to do that and get projects off the ground. Let me see if I can apply my skill set there. Um, and then I got to know Cormac and, and oh my God, right? The, the guy. So Cormac is one of those individuals when you meet them at a cocktail party. And Jay, I know that you know what I'm talking about. When you look somebody in the eyes and you go, okay there's something else going on here, right? When you know somebody is functioning at a much higher level intellectually that you just feel it, you know that they're, even when he speaks, there's limited ums and uhs. There is a beautiful and inspiring sense of confidence and self. And that was born, I think, partially from, you know, he's got multiple degrees from Carnegie Mellon. He's a quant. He spent his career building trading systems on Wall Street and built five companies, sold four to Fortune 100s, Oracle and News Corp included. And over the course of his career, um, well, I should mention, he invented heat maps. And I think I mentioned this to you when we first spoke. I'm like, I call it his Forrest Gump moment, where it's like one of these, it's like one of these most bizarre, culturally profound inventions that you're like, he invented heat maps. Okay. I know what a heat map is. Didn't really consider that there was somebody out there that invented it, thought it might have been done by a company, you know, like by committee. Um, But he invented heat maps. Um, By virtue of all these systems that he built, engaged with Uh, Bloomberg and Michael Bloomberg, the literal human being, Michael Bloomberg. And Michael Bloomberg set him up with his wife, Mimi So. And the reason why that's important for the story of Diamond Standard is that Mimi So is a celebrity jewelry designer. Um, And we we joked over dinner months ago where I was like, all right, Mimi, you know, name some famous people that you've designed some jewelry for. And she was like, uh, David Bowie and Amon. And I was like, okay, you win. Famous people. Done. Check that box. 
But by virtue of being married to Mimi for all those years, Cormac learned a lot about diamonds and learned how dysfunctional the diamond market truly is. So he spent the past six years, a lot of his own money, a lot of his own time and research, um, A, getting regulatory approval for diamond standard and B, researching that market. Like, is this going to be worthwhile? Um, Is this something that we should be doing? And what Cormac unearthed was that the diamond market is a definitively untapped market for investors, right? So you've got about $9 trillion worth of gold that's been mined, and about 40% of that is held by individual investors and banks, right? Probably your listeners might have some gold bars in their safe, hedge against inflation, store of wealth, great investment. Silver, palladium, and rhodium combined, less of that has been mined than all of the diamonds. So there's been about $1.5 trillion worth of diamonds that have been mined. But this is the percentage that got Cormac really thinking. Silver, palladium, rhodium, about 15% of each of those precious metals is held by investors and banks, et cetera, as an investment, as a hedge against inflation and a store of wealth. And then Jay, they get like, Take, when Jay, podcast listeners should know when Jay and I first met, I asked him this question and he knew it off the bat. So I will say that he absolutely did know this, but I'll say it. Less than 1% of the $1.5 trillion worth of diamonds that have been mined is held as an investment. And that's because it's completely dysfunctional, right? Like if you go buy a diamond for your fiance for $10,000 and you walk around the corner and try and sell it for 15, that person's going to give you $2,000 for it. It's just the way it works. That pendulum does swing that far. Um, so investors didn't really use it as an investment vehicle to do the, all those things that gold and silver and palladium and rhodium do store wealth, hedge against inflation, um, and diversifying your portfolio. So Cormac got the regulatory approval filed for patents associated with everything diamond standard. I should mention that Cormac has over 4,000 references to his name in the U.S. patent office, which I think is insane. He was he was speaking at an event up in Newport, Rhode Island, and I had to pick him up at the train station. And when I picked him up, I was like, hey, Cormac, how was your train ride? And he's like, great. I wrote a new patent. And I was like, you and I spend our time on a train very differently. <laughs> it would yeah. not have been something I'd have been like, I'm going to write a new patent on the train. Um, and it was only a few hour train ride up from New York up to, uh, up to Rhode Island. So he went about getting the regulatory approval. Bermuda Monetary Authority is our regulator. We are audited quarterly by Deloitte. And we already have approval for our futures contract on the CME. We're working with the Bank of Montreal to launch our ETF through the um, Toronto Exchange. We launched our coins with our initial... Some people say IPO. I think it confuses investors where they think that we, you know, they could buy our stock. It was an initial public offering of the coin because the regulator, Bermuda Monetary Authority, said that we were allowed to sell $25 million worth of the coins. And we were oversubscribed by about 30%, meaning there is an appetite out there, Jay. Like People realized that they couldn't invest in diamonds before. They want to invest in diamonds now. And shouldn't you know should they move forward and should they do this yes so they invested in all that money oh one thing i should mention i I really should mention this before beforehand when cormac and i connected about diamond standard 
you know, I wasn't sure, right? Career tech guy, um, you know, social media expert, whatever. You know, I've written books on building person, your personal brand. Um, social I've media. Book, social, social media, media guru. guru. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Self-proclaimed social media guru. It's like the douchiest thing to say ever, right? <laughs> I'm a guru. So silly. Um, so done all that stuff. But I, I went to my really smart friends in my hometown in, in Chappaqua. And I said, there were a bunch of guys and gals that work in finance. And I asked them, I'm like, what do you think about this company, Diamond Standard? And across the board, unanimously, everybody was like, do it. Absolutely do it. And I think one of the more profound pieces of feedback was a retired commodities trader who was actually my yoga instructor, Jody's husband. <laughs> I do yoga on Saturdays. I wasn't lying. Um, he's, a, he's a retired commodities trader. And when I explained to him what Cormac had come up with, he was silent, Jay. Like, you could hear crickets. And he's like, holy shit, he figured it out. And I was like, okay, these much smarter people are telling me to take this job. It was 11, there were 11 people. I know that there were 11 people because I bought 11 bottles of bourbon and then went around Chappaqua and put it on their front porch to thank them. And then move forward with, with becoming part of Diamond Standard. But when we launched in March of last year, oversubscribed, we then went about the business of buying the diamonds from over a hundred different countries in the world's first and only fully transparent diamond exchange patented as well. The diamond standard coin is patented. The reason why the coin is profoundly important as an investment vehicle, A, it's a first of its kind, B, it is patented, C, there's a microchip embedded in the diamond standard coin so that when you purchase a coin, IPO was $5,000, you get issued 10,000 tokens. When you get issued those 10,000 tokens, they will eventually be convertible to our cryptocurrency, BitCarbon, when we launch it. However, we then take the coin and we place that coin on the public blockchain. And this is what got it for me. And the reason is when you put it on the public blockchain, individual investors can then track the provenance of the diamonds that are in your actual coin. And that is a game changer, absolute game changer. So we list the initial public offering, oversubscribed, take that money, use our patented, fully transparent diamond exchange. We are also the world's most efficient diamond buyers, full stop, because it's a fully transparent diamond exchange and we don't need that one specific diamond. We just need a, a sample of diamonds in that ecosystem of cut of that diamond, of the carrot of the diamond. 0.17 to 0.75 carats. I know people are going to ask for the coins. When we go out and buy them, we then ingest that. Oh, we only buy pre-cut. We only buy GIA certified diamonds so that you can look them up and you know that that's the diamond that you purchased. We ingest them into IGI studios. IGI then assembles the coins. We don't touch it. We don't make the price. We are only, you should view us as diamond standard coin miners, just like gold miners. They want to mine the gold as efficiently as possible. You want to create the diamond standard coin as efficiently as possible. Once that's ingested, we then assemble the actual coins. You're issued the tokens. You can track it with a microchip. So you could say, you could track your literal diamond standard coin and you could see the literal diamonds that are in it. You could take delivery to your home, but you'd have to pay taxes. 
or you can hold it at a Brinks facility in Delaware, no taxes. As long as you keep it in the Brinks facility in Delaware, you can transact that by leveraging the tokens. If you take personal delivery of it, you cannot have access to the tokens anymore, but you could barter. You could go to anybody and say, hey, I spent $5,000 on this. What do you want to pay me for this diamond standard coin? Key for your listeners, the diamond standard coin is the commodity, not the diamonds, the coin. That's why it's patented. It's a really important thing. This, in my mind, is one of the most profound inventions of our century in finance. We've unlocked a $1.5 trillion market that was previously uninvestable. And the inertia of it all, the, the boulder just got pushed off the top of the hill and it is rolling down the hill. Because what we didn't realize was, okay, we're going to go to inst- large institu- institutions that are going to have a real palette for this. Retail investors have a definitive palette for this, especially because of what's happening with inflation, especially what's happening because of unrest and COVID and all sorts of things, especially what's happening with like Wall Street bets, diamond hands. Hey, everybody on Reddit, let's go upend and crush a hedge fund. Isn't that cool? especially because Jay, somebody like you starting a podcast, right? Like the world has definitively changed. People are taking control of their finances and they're taking control of their portfolios and they're looking for alternative investments. They're looking to invest in, you know, Scott at Masterworks and they want to invest in a, in a piece of art through his company. Um, or they're going, you know, they're going to any other alternative platform and investing in baseball cards or Pokemon or NFTs or cryptocurrencies or anything and everything that wasn't in their dad's portfolio, right? That they want to be able to say, I'm going to take control of everything that I'm doing here and make it the best that I can make it. Now, we're at this inflection point where we've had a breakout Q1, which has been absolutely ridiculous with the retail sale of the diamond standard coins. I think they're trading at about 6,400. Now the original investors have seen a 34% return on their initial investment. We are launching a peer to peer market so that those initial investors will be able to become liquid with their initial investment. That's coming in the, in the, in a, the a few weeks. Um, we are also launching our fund in partnership with Horizon Kinetics. Horizon Kinetics was one of our initial equity investors. Um, so we're very excited about that. And we're poised to open that up. Um, we actually had... There is a, a fund website, fund.diamondstandard.co. And we already have a waiting list of 108 people and institutions that have already told us the threshold of what they want to invest in the fund. So that's it's pretty exciting because you know as a chief revenue officer, like these are things that I'm looking at. I'm going, all right, if we convert 10% of the people that already filled out that doc, those documents and told us what they want to invest in, it's going to be an incredible journey for us. Um, what else? I'll shut up. Any questions for me? That was a lot, man. Jeez, I could talk <laughs> a blue street. There's a lot to talk about. Cormac is an inspiring guy. It's the reason why it's my favorite job, man. He's a genius. He really is. He's a ge- I've never met anybody like him. And um, I've also never met anybody that has access to the both sides of their brain the way that he does. He can create a PowerPoint presentation or uses Keynote. He can design something and create something absolutely beautiful. 
um, and compelling. And then you can also write code. And it's, it's really just a fascinating thing to watch him in action and see the way his brain works and how he conducts his day. I've also never met an individual with as much intellectual and as a result, physical energy. You know, when you meet somebody where you're just like, they're passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. And I think it's an overused thing for people to say, Oh, that person's passionate about what they do. Cause I think you got to do things that you absolutely hate to find passion. Right. And you got to get good at doing the things that absolutely suck and are absolutely difficult in order to like get to that spot. But he's definitely a unique unicorn of a dude more wow. so than I've ever encountered. Maybe, yeah. maybe Gary, maybe Gary V is up there. Gary, Gary's Gary's unique that way where Gary is just kind of like a force of nature. Um, and Gary has a different kind of genius, but yeah, when you're around people like that, you know, it, you, you're like, you know, you kind of walk out of the room and you're like, Whoa, <laughs> what was <Yeah>. that? <laughs> I know. I guess I get a sense with uh, Gary V. There's the crazy amount of energy that he brings to, to meetings or to the room or just to the stage. You know, it's interesting. The first time I met Gary was probably 2008. I went out to wine library. I'd seen him speak at an iMedia event. And it was one, I think it was like one of the first recorded events that he spoke 15 minute speech. It's great. It's great. It's still great. Like he just talks about, there's no reason why you should be unhappy in your life. Like use the internet to, to crush it. And I wrote him a really long letter because I was inspired by it. And I wanted to work for him. So I went out to wine library and I'll never forget this. He was talking to his colleagues about like, I overheard him talking about like their, their fantasy sports team. And then he walked in and he was sipping a cup of tea and was like super quiet. I was like, Hey man, how are you? And like super laid back and chill and normal. And, you know, was running his wine business with his dad successfully, Yeah, you know, had a little extra scratch to invest in Twitter and Facebook and buddy media and all these other companies and, and did really well. He's certain, certain kind of genius, man. I also saw him in action in conference rooms and, um, I've never seen anybody sell the way he could sell in the, you know, in the NA, the NHL meetings, he like, he got up and walked around the room and was like chewing gum and wearing a t-shirt and jeans. And I was wearing, you know, a blazer and a collared shirt. And I was mortified. I was like, Oh my God, what is he doing? And we closed the deal. Cause he just knew how to, he understood it. You know, he knew social media more than anybody else. Cause he built wine library TV. People don't know that he started doing wine library TV. That's a fun show to like, you go back, back and watch those old episodes of him. It's just him sitting in front of a camera reviewing wine like a normal human being, like giving like a normal meaning, like instead of like, I, there are hints of rose and whatever. He's like, it tastes like, you know, when you're chewing on big league chew when you were a little kid and it's like really fruity in the beginning, but then it loses the flavor about 20 minutes later and you want to throw it out because it's kind of plasticky, but you still got a little bit of that red flavor in your mouth. That's what I'm getting from this wine. And I was like, oh my God, this guy. Like I could watch him forever reviewing wine. So by virtue of doing that, he figured out how to, you know, do everything, social media. And yeah, there was a certain level of genius there. There goes Cormac. He just walked behind me. I know you're not videotaping this for your audience, but Cormac zigzagging behind me in the camera and Jagus is is watching him. Told you. Mental energy and physical energy. He's zipping back and forth. (laughs) I saw him walk past before. Um, But yeah, when you guys reached out about the diamond standard and, 
first of all, I know you've you've talked about it in detail there in terms of that it's actually a physical coin. It is a coin with diamonds set into the coin. So it's a, it is a commodity. And you then also talked about the fact that the assets will be verifiable on the blockchain in terms of the, the ownership can be used there. So yeah. you, that again sort of stood out to me because people talk about the blockchain technology and its actual real world use cases. And this is a, you know, the dam standard is a company now that, that, that is actually using that technology almost in the real world, not just in the, the web three blockchain world where people sort of have to think, well, how's this going to be used where you're actually physically doing that with this company. So I thought that was also really exciting. Um, to the point around how investors can get involved, obviously through, through the coin, I know you've also got uh, bars as well coming. Um, for, for investors that maybe can't afford a coin at this stage, what's the, what's the next step? Is it through the ETF or one of the funds? How, how else can an investor access? Yeah. So, so here's the way I view it is we are in the process of democratizing access to diamonds as an investment as a real investment by creating the literal diamond standard. We created the diamond standard during our IPO, right? Like that set the standard. Yep. Now you as a retail investor can go to diamondstandard.co and purchase a singular diamond standard coin at a little bit over $6,000. And that is your investment in a diamond standard coin. It will never go below whatever you can sell those diamonds for that are in the actual coin. It is, you know, I love that you brought up the blockchain portion of it because sometimes people get confused when I say the token will be convertible to our cryptocurrency, which we haven't launched yet, Bitcarbon. So I don't even like to talk about the cryptocurrency because some investors, when they hear that, they kind of roll their eyes. They want something fungible. Yeah. They, they get sick when they hear about non-fungible tokens. So that's why when I'm doing a video conference, I'll, you know, I'll hold the coin out. This is a fungible commodity that sits in your hand. It is a literal coin. It's not a shit coin. It's not, you know, it's not some you know, next crypto thing. Now, the reason why that becomes even more compelling for investors right now, for retail investors is because of the runway of the suite of financial tools that we're offering, right? So, or financial vehicles, I should say. So it's the coin, then the bar. And the bar has been launched already. So the bar is available and it's just 10X the coin. Then we're having the fund. The fund is a $10,000 minimum investment. You must be accredited and it's a hold for a year. Then there'll be the ETF, then the futures contract, then crypto. So there's a couple of scenarios in that, in that bandwidth of suites of you know, the suite of financial products that you can invest in. Many of the, of the retail investors that have been flooding us in Q1 are flooding because when was the last time you were able to be on the ground, one of the first investors in a first of its kind commodity? Never. The answer is never. 
And when was the last time you were able to be involved in an investment that is regulated, that is proven, that has patents associated with all of the suites of products and critical items and technologies that it uses? I didn't mention the optimizer, but I'll loop back to that as well. It's another patented um, AI that we use in order to determine the geological value in each coin. When was the last time a retail investor had access to that prior to it becoming democratized via institutions? Never, probably never again. So when the, when we're speaking with retail investors that are buying five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 coins at a time, or they're buying three, three, six, nine bars at a time, it's because they realize that once the institutions start throwing 10, 30, 60 million into the fund, and once the RIAs and FAs can add the ETF into their portfolio and go to grandma and say, hey, grandma, you sprinkled 1% of your portfolio into gold, and 1% into silver, why don't you put 1% into diamonds, right? That once that happens, and once it's fully democratized, where everybody can invest in it, the cat's out of the bag. That train has left the station definitively. So you get a, it's a bit of a FOMO effect. However, it's a regulator-approved, patented, proven FOMO effect. This is not, um, and, and it, you know, this is not theory. This is not uh, qualitative. This is all quantitative. This is all, um, you know, way above board. This is all proven. Um, and that's where it becomes exciting. And that's where, you know, I was at my 25th college reunion two weekends ago and yeah, man, I was walking around with diamond standard coins and I'm like, guys, get in now. You got kids, buy one for your kids. My daughters have one each, um, you know, and I'm excited about it. I'm like, does, you know, I'm not rolling in buying $5 million worth of them. I don't have that, but like, Hey, get one for each child. That's an exciting prospect and, and watch it grow. Definitely. And I think, um, I would, encourage the obviously the wealth journal isn't financial advice but I'd, I'd encourage people to to have a look at the diamond standard website as, as i've done and um you'll see interviews with cormac on cnbc um real vision yeah. who are a very credible uh, finance source uh, you've been in the media a huge amount as well because because it is so innovative so yeah have a look at the, the coins are available to purchase on there now i believe um it, is that right? Yep. Um, yep. So, and if they're if they're big, if they're Bitcoin people and they know Murray Stahl from Horizon Kinetics, they should, you know, look at the Murray Stahl Cormac Kinney interview. Murray was one of the very earliest investors in Bitcoin and a proponent of Bitcoin. It's unusual. He's a you know a older guy but smart. Um, and to watch Cormac and Murray Stahl interact with each other, boy, that's a joy. You watch two minds talk about finance in that in that regard. Oof, incredible! Wow, I'll um I'll be sure to try and link a lot of what we've discussed in the show notes as well, so 
your TEDx video. Yeah, cool. I'll put I'll put the link to that in and um yeah, that interview there with Cormac. I'll make sure that's that's in the show notes and of course the the Diamond Standard website. Um Thanks, Jim. In terms of people sort of learning a little bit more about you, is what's the best way to sort of connect with you? Is it via your blog still or follow you on Twitter, LinkedIn, or anything like that? What's the, what's the best way, Chris? I always enjoy LinkedIn. Um, so, you know, it's just Google search for Chris Desi. And if they find me on LinkedIn, find me. My blog content is up. I mean, it's it's got years, literally, literal years worth of my content and writing on there. Um and I had a column on Inc.com for a long time. Um, they can find a lot of my content there. I am on Twitter. I'm not as active on Twitter as I used to be. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn is is pretty much the the right spot for it. But you know, ignore me. Go look at the Cormac stuff and can go listen to what Cormac has to say because um, you know we are at the tip of the spear of a definitive financial revolution that is happening. That is so exciting. Um, and yeah, you're not giving investment advice, but it's just interesting, right? It's like, yeah. you know, applying crypto to a real world fungible thing to create a new commodity. Whoa. Who thinks of that? Who thinks of that? That's why it's such a joy to work here. Like you're around a guy like that. whose brain works that way, man. You're I learn stuff every day from them. Yeah, hundred percent. And I talk a lot on the podcast about building your asset column, like build your asset column to build your wealth. And for me, I like to have different things in my asset column, whether it's um, stocks and shares, crypto, real estate, commodities. And I think Love this it. is just another thing that people can go away and research. If if it works for them, then then great. And um, yeah, I think it's uh, something else that you can add and put in your asset column. And, if, and and honestly, if people want to reach out to me directly, they can. It's just Chris, C-H-R-I-S at diamondstandard.co. We have a fresh off the press deck that we finalized yesterday. And if they're real deep dive analysts, right? And they want to do their research, we've got some great research in there. And it's just, it's just great reading material. Um, and we know, you know, and every good investor is going to conduct their research and we're happy to support you with any documentation that you need. So they can just find me. I'm not hard to find, man. I literally wrote a book about personal brand building. So like, if you Google me, it's me. Yeah. <laughs> You'll see all the Chris Desi that you, that, that you can find. <laughs> I apologize in advance. <laughs> no worries. No problem. Well, Chris... It's been amazing to talk to you. I've really, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate you um, sharing a lot about your career, your personal life, talking about your dad. I think that was, you know, just amazing to hear and the lessons that you've learned from from him and through all the people in your career. So, thanks for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for talking about Diamond Standard as well. And I've just, yeah, I've really enjoyed chatting with you today. So. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jay. I got to tell you, man, I'm going to really enjoy listening to your podcast for a really long time because you're a special kind of human being, man. I cannot express how much I enjoyed this conversation and I cannot express how much I respect you and the way you approach the content on this podcast. And I'm certain that your listeners um, feel it and will continue to resonate your words will resonate for them because they're coming from a really pure and real spot. Like you could feel it, man. So like, I will tell, I'll, I'll leave you with this. And this, these were my father's last words to me. Keep up the good work.
Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> There's no more I can say. So yeah, we'll, we'll close it off there. And um, yeah, thanks again. Thank you.